It is a brisk Saturday afternoon without a cloud in the sky in New York City on March 25th, 1911, and the workers of the quickly growing metropolis have begun packing up their things to enjoy the rest of their evening at home, as well as anticipating the best day of the week, Sunday. The day off. In few places is this excitement felt more readily than on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the Ash Building on the corner of Green Street and Washington Place, where 500 workers, mostly young immigrant women and girls, worked sewing clothing for the Triangle Waste Company. The workers had grown accustomed to working 50 hours a week or more because as immigrants, they didn't have much choice. As the women donned their coats and hats, another worker on the eighth floor tossed a cigarette butt into what he thought was a trash bin. Instead of a trash bin, it was a scrap bin, full of discarded cloth that had been accumulating for the better part of two months and dehydrating in the stuffy factory air. In a minute or less, the entire bin had erupted into a bonfire, consuming other nearby clothing that was hanging on racks adjacent to the bin. While factory workers attempted to use pails of water to put the fire out, it was spreading too quickly, and eventually those who were attempting to extinguish the blaze had to retreat to save their own lives. In less than ten minutes, the eighth floor had devolved into an inferno, but the women on the ninth floor had scarcely time to react before the fire crept to the ninth and 10th floors. Trapped behind locked doors, a malfunctioning elevator, and a faulty fire escape, all the 200 women could do was hold one another and pray as the ninth floor became embroiled in flame, ash, and smoke. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened, and what's going to happen here is that Tanner is going to talk about stuff that happened. I'm Tanner, so I'm going to be talking about some stuff that happened, and the stuff that happened that we're covering today is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire of 1911. And why is this important? Well, this week we're talking about economics. We're talking about money and why the world handles money the way that it does. So how do we get money while we work for it? So when there's a large company, there's a lot of workers in that company, and the workers establish the wealth. So I'm talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire today because it had a very large impact on the workforce of not just the Triangle Factory, but the world as a whole. And I mean, primarily in the United States, but actually reverberations were felt all over the world, all over the industrialized world, at least. So have you ever wondered why your doors at work usually remain unlocked? I mean, why if you work in a high rise, why there are always fire escapes and why there are fire ex extinguishers in most rooms of workplaces? Well, probably not, right? You probably don't think about these things every day. Well, have you ever wondered why you're not allowed to work more than 40 hours a week or 8 hours in a day without being paid overtime? Also, probably not, right? We're just happy to get that good overtime pay, you know what I'm saying? Well, this can be all traced back to an event that happened on a cold afternoon in March of 1911 in New York City and the circumstances leading up to it. The early 1900s was a time of fashion. The Industrial Revolution had allowed for clothing to become far cheaper, allowing the working class to purchase more trendy clothing for cheaper prices, leading to a boom in the clothing industry. Many companies wanted to get in on this boom, and among these companies were two entrepreneurs, Max Blanc and Isaac Harris. 
Both were Russian immigrants and had climbed the ladder in the garment industry during its boom in the 1890s. And after Max married Isaac's cousin, the two met and found themselves to have a compatible business mindset. Quickly establishing a partnership, they opened a shop and capitalized on the newest trends in the clothing. By the year 1900, it was the shirtwaist. The shirtwaist was invented with the sole purpose of replacing the corset, which had dimmed in popularity among women as the 19th century faded and women began joining the industrial workforce. Such constrictive wear was not ideal for the factory floor and the shirtwaist was a small band that a woman would wear across her abdomen that hugged her clothing to her waist, providing the perfect solution for loose clothing in an industrial setting. As women continued to find employment, the shirtwaist rose in popularity and became a fashion statement. Max and Isaac took notice and promptly opened a factory on the ninth floor of the brand new Ash Building in 1902. As the demand for shirtwaists rose, so did their business, and in 1906, the company expanded to also occupy the eighth floor, and by around the same time, the partners opened factories in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. By 1908, Revenue in the company broke the $1 million mark, which is around $28.5 million in 2020. And the Triangle Shirtwaist Company became the largest producer of shirtwaists in New York, earning the partners the name Shirtwaist Kings. They moved from their small cramped apartments to lavish brownstones overlooking the Hudson River, employing multiple servants each and riding to work in chauffeured vehicles. Yeah, they were on top of the world living the American dream. But the workers that made their fortunes possible? Not so much. Max and Isaac hadn't gotten to the top of the ladder because of their moral structure. In order to undercut most of the other manufacturers in New York City, they had to produce the most inexpensive product. And they did so by forcing their workers, who were mostly Jewish and Italian immigrants, to work long hours for little pay and put their inventory under a microscope. They even started examining their workers' bags before they left work every day, and as an added deterrent to theft, they ordered a secondary exit door remained locked at all hours. They were in full control. But not for long. In November of 1909, due to dissatisfaction among the workers due to their meager pay and below average working conditions, the workers of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, along with other workers from other factories with female majority workforces, went on strike, demanding shorter hours, higher pay, and basic working materials such as needles and thread, often that they were having to provide with their own funds. Max and Isaac were furious. They began paying off police officers and thugs to attack picket lines, harassing and occasionally beating protesters, both male and female. But despite their best efforts, the strike continued well into 1910, and the slowing of production began hurting the businessmen's profits. Reluctantly, they agreed to higher pay, with 12% to 15% raises, shorter shifts, with a maximum 52-hour work week, and better working conditions overall. It was a victory for the strikers that had been hard fought and well earned. They lowered their picket signs and returned to their jobs as factory production returned to normal. And even though the next year in the industrial workforce of New York City was relatively quiet in the political sense, Max and Isaac's pride had been wounded and they stayed very bitter from the debacle. They doubled down on their checking of workers' bags as they left work and locking exit doors in order to keep staff 
from taking unauthorized breaks during the workday. And then, on March 25th, 1911, disaster struck. When we come back, we are going to hear the full story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, but right before that, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Around 4.40 p.m., factory workers were preparing to leave for the day, gathering up their belongings and heading for the elevators, when a worker on the 8th floor tossed a lit cigar butt into a bin of scrapped cloth, thinking it was a dumpster, and the bin erupted into flame, quickly catching fire to the surrounding clothing hanging on the racks. The workers on the 8th floor quickly took notice and piled into the elevator, with the rest taking the other two staircases as they filled with smoke, safely exiting the building. Before fleeing, a bookkeeper on the 8th floor was able to warn employees of a different company on the 10th floor of the fire, and they, too, were able to flee to safety, either by staircase or by nearby rooftops. But on the 9th floor, there was no way for the workers to be warned, because there was no telephone installed. While the 8th and 10th floor scrambled into a frenzy to be emptied, the workers on the 9th floor carefully finished their daily work and mulled about, saying their goodbyes to one another and packing up their workstations as the flames crept up the stairwell. According to a survivor on the 9th floor, the warning of the fire came at the same time the fire did, as flames poured onto the 9th floor in minutes. Workers panicked and pandemonium ensued as they looked for a way out. While a few employees were able to escape to the roof by narrowly escaping the flames, the stairwells in both directions were quickly blocked with flame, and all other exits had been locked. So when workers began piling onto a rickety fire escape that had been narrowly passed off as safe, which was a corner the architects had cut to keep from building a necessary third staircase to meet codes, the weight of so many people proved too much for that fire escape and the heat of the fire began twisting the metal before the flimsy metal structure gave way, sending 20 screaming workers plummeting eight stories to the pavement below. When elevator operators Joseph Zito and Gaspar Montalero, both Italian immigrants, realized what was happening, they heroically made three more trips up to the ninth floor during the fire to rescue as many workers as they could. Ultimately, they saved dozens of lives before the heat from the blaze warped the cables under the elevator car, making further trips impossible. Now, surviving workers on the ninth floor were trapped with all avenues of escape either impassable or broken. With all hope fading quickly, the remaining workers headed for the windows, beginning to tragically jump to escape the heat and the inevitable fate of being burned alive. One by one, the workers of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory leapt eight stories to their deaths, with onlookers watching helplessly in horror. At one point, an unidentified young man stood on the windowsill and helped women onto the ledge before they jumped to their deaths. Perhaps the most heart-wrenching moment of the fire occurred here, as the man helped a young woman about his age onto the ledge. With flame and smoke billowing through the surrounding windows, the young man and young woman shared one last look before they kissed one another and jumped hand in hand. By five o'clock, the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the Ash Building were engulfed in flame, and by 5.10, 
the entire building was silent, except for the sound of dying fires. In less than a half an hour, the entire ordeal was over. On the morning of March 25, 1911, 200 workers left their homes and went to work on the ninth floor of the Ash Building in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. 146 of them, 123 women and girls, and 23 men, would not return home. Several days later, a funeral procession followed with 400,000 New Yorkers turning out to pay their respects. It didn't take long for the families of the victims to launch a criminal investigation into the business practices of Max Blanc and Isaac Harris, with the general public calling for the two to be held responsible. They had, after all, locked most of the exits to keep the workers from taking unauthorized breaks. On April 11th, 17 days after the fire, Max Blanc and Isaac Harris were indicted on seven counts of manslaughter of the first and second degree, with bail set to $25,000, which was around $650,000 today. They paid the bail and went to trial in December of the same year, sitting through over 100 emotional testimonies of witnesses over a three-week period. Prosecutors cited Section 80 of the Labor Code, which stated that all exits must be unlocked, a blatant violation that the businessmen had routinely participated in. However, the two men had hired the most expensive lawyer in New York, and they were acquitted of the murders on grounds that there was no way they could have known that the doors had been locked. I say, that's a load of While the businessmen were allowed to walk free, their business was in shambles, in part due to the fire and in part due to public opinion being widely turned against them. Most of their meager revenue from the company had to be used to pay off their expensive lawyer fees, and at one point, they were sued for being unable to pay a water bill. In the next few years, the business owners would reach a settlement with the families of the victims where they paid a week's worth of wages to each family. Max Blanc would be fined for, once again, locking a door in one of his factories, as well as be issued a warning for not dealing with hazardous work conditions that led to the Triangle Factory fire. In 1914, the men were fined again after an investigation found that they were sewing false labels into their clothes that read Consumers League, which can only be used if clothing is certified to have been crafted under ethical and safe working conditions. The fine exposed the business owners once again, and the negative press eventually took its ultimate toll. In 1918, the businessmen closed Triangle Shirtwaist for good. Their tainted reputations had soiled all hope of a profitable business in Triangle, and Isaac Harris retreated from the public eye and large-scale business, choosing instead to be a small-time tailor for the rest of his life. While Max Blanc opted to govern over several smaller companies, he would never again obtain the fortune he amassed during his lifetime as a Triangle Shirtwaist executive. As a result of the fire and the ensuing public rage, New York City Legislature created the Factory Investigating Commission, which examined factories in the city in order to craft safer working conditions. After interviewing over 200 employees and collecting 3,500 pages of testimony, a large series of bills were introduced to the legislature. The commission ultimately proposed 64 new bills between 1911 and 1913. 60 of them were signed into law. Among these, better building access and egress, fireproofing requirements, 
the availability of fire extinguishers, the installation of alarm systems and automatic sprinklers, better eating and toilet facilities for workers, and limiting the number of hours that women and children are allowed to work. In two years, New York City had gone from being notoriously anti-worker to being one of the most progressive work environments in the world. In 2011, a 100th year anniversary memorial was held in front of the building where the fire took place, which still stands today. A large group of people gathered with many holding shirtwaists and bells, with 146 shirts with shirtwaists being held on poles above the crowd, a name of a victim on every shirt. Through the use of the internet, an organization called Remember the Triangle put out a call for a centennial event like no other in commemoration of those who met an unjust end during the Triangle Factory Fire of 1911. At approximately 4.45 p.m. Eastern, the same time as the first firehouse bell was sounded on the day of the fire, bells across the United States began ringing simultaneously, and standing before the building where it all happened, the names of all 146 victims were read aloud. Those in attendance vowed to make sure that all workers in the nation were held to the standard where their human life would never again be jeopardized by the greed of an executive body. And that's going to do it for this week on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. This was a very interesting podcast to do and very tragic. It's a very, very sad story. But because of it, so many good innovations in how we treat our workers have taken place. Unions have become a very important part of the capitalist society that we have here in the United States. And I, as, a, as, as part of the American workforce, am very grateful that protections like we have because of events like this are in place to protect the average worker. So thank you for joining me again. If you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a five-star review. Even feel free to leave me a very kind note if you feel so inclined to do so. So I will catch you all next week. We have a lot of good episodes coming up for the rest of the year, and I'm excited to get into them. Enjoy the rest of your week, everyone, and God bless.